0: All right, we are continuing through the book of Mark. We are on Mark chapter 10. Let's go ahead and open up your copy of God's Word. Mark chapter 10, we're going to cover verses 17 through 31 today. Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 17. If you would, once you got your copy, stand with me as we read Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 17. It says, And as he was setting out on, a, on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is none who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You this morning for Your Word. We thank You for a time to just pause and to reflect upon the truths of Your Word. And Father, I pray that You would speak to us. Would You just teach us this morning? Would You just help us to come and sit at Your feet and learn from You, from Your Word? We thank You. We praise You. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. If you have a pen, I want you to jot something down. As recommended viewing, um, if you uh, go to YouTube and you type in American Gospel and Christ Alone, I would highly, highly recommend you watch it. I watched, uh, there's like a 40, and you're going to laugh at this, It's like a 40 minute preview of a two and a half hour movie you can rent, um, and the 40 minute preview is fantastic and um, actually gave me some thoughts in this text, but um, I would say that's required viewing for you. Uh, It's just fantastic. Um, So, Mark chapter 10, we are dwindling down on the ministry of Jesus as He approaches Calvary in what is the greatest moment of history. And as the story begins, we're just going to walk through this text verse by verse, and uh, there's some really neat stuff. I used to always look at this passage and think it was all about wealth, and, and the thought was always in my mind that, well, I'm not rich, and I don't ever think I'll get rich, so this passage doesn't have a ton of application for me, but the more I studied it, uh, the more beautiful this passage becomes, and it is really a beautiful picture of the gospel. So the context is, Jesus has just finished, uh, we, we heard a great... Uh, uh, sermon from Mike last week just talking through um, the importance of little children. And Jesus had been blessing these children after He had rebuked His disciples. The children come in, He blesses them, He finishes up there, and it says that He was setting out on His journey. And that's where our story begins. In verse 17, it says that he was setting out on his journey, and a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's a lot going on here. And what I find uh, amazing is uh, this man. Um, there's so many things that happen here that, that just kind of hit me. Uh, first of all, his actions that, that I want us to look at. So... This man comes, it says that he comes running up, and he kneels before Jesus. So Jesus is getting ready to, to leave, to go to the next place, and this man comes running in, and he kneels before him, and he delivers this plea, this request. And, and I think there's a number of things that this can kind of tell us. First of all, he came running, which tells me that there was a sense of urgency in him he wanted to catch Jesus before he left to go on to the next thing and and so there's there's something there that he's like I got to get there and I got to get there quick but not just that he came running it tells us he knelt before him that is desperation I mean, this puts in our mind something about this young man. It tells us in in, in Luke's account, it tells us he is a a. Uh, so in each in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all give us kind of a different uh, description of him, and 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 it. Combined it tells us that he was a rich young ruler, and the word ruler the Greek implies that he was very influential he was powerful. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that he was probably of the sanhedrin so this guy was was of the Sanhedrin, which we can we can kind of also see from his response to the commandments that he had kept them uh, so here 's this man that um, was a ruler. He was, he was young, but, but keep in mind, if he was a ruler, probably of the Sanhedrin who was the enemy of Jesus at this time. Let that sink in. It says that he came running and knelt before Jesus. He came running to the opposition and knelt before Him in a form of submission, in a plea that tells you how desperate this man was. That he didn't care who saw him. He needed something from this man desperately. He didn't care what anyone else thought of what he was doing. And I think we're going to come back to that. That is so important for us to start to grasp. And his request, he says... Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And good here, the Greek word, this is very, very important. The Greek word means intrinsically good. Not good based on his actions, but he was good from within. In other words, he was equating Jesus to a morally uh, perfect, good person. We know especially that's affirmed in Jesus' response that we're going to get to. But the question... The question he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is a landmine. It tells us a lot. It indicates a lot about the man. He had the ideal life, right? He was the American dream. He was rich, he was still youthful, and he had influence and power because he was a ruler. And yet this question and the desperation in it tells us that he wasn't satisfied. I mean, this is the pursuit of the American dream, right? To be rich, to be young, youthful, filled with energy, and to have influence and power. And what this young man does by his actions and his question is show that his riches weren't enough to satisfy. Luke twelve fifteen tells us, that uh, and, uh, take, Jesus says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That this young man's uh, riches weren't enough to satisfy. That his influence and his popularity weren't enough to satisfy. There was something missing. And his, in, and his, his, his approach is indicative of his desperation. That he had gotten to a place where he had just been lacking. I find it amazing to me uh, in America, the land of the rich, the free, the home of the brave. Everything is here. The opportunities opportunities abundant and yet we lead the world in depression and anxiety. Because none of those things satisfy. They never will. Yet we pursue them to all degrees. I have a dear friend who's going through a divorce. And uh, he had a coworker, same or a, a friend who's in the same business, going through divorce. Two other couples in the same team going through divorce in this organization, because their mantra is: do all you can in this life and dispose of anything that gets in the way of your happiness. What this question also does is indicate his beliefs. He was a moralist. He was legalistic. Notice what he says. What must I do? What must I do? And then he asks to inherit. What a question. It is such an odd question because you can literally do nothing to influence an inheritance. There's nothing you can do ever to, in, to increase or decrease inheritance because it's all up to the person who is bequeathing it, right? I suppose you could influence it by being mean or, or, or corrupt towards that person and they write you out of the will, but but he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You can't do anything to inherit something. Yet this is the logic of the unjust stewards in Matthew chapter uh, 21 in this parable that Jesus tells uh, where these guys have a vineyard that they're in charge of and Jesus tells a story of how these uh, men were sent and the the stewards didn't want to give up what they had so they killed uh, persecuted them. And then finally, the master of the land says, I will send my son. Surely they will respect my son. And his, in this amazing statement, the, the stewards say, ah, here is the heir. If we kill him, we can have the inheritance. What must I do, and then he asks to... What must I do to inherit eternal life? Please note, this man was very sincere in his religious practice. Moralists and legalists are always sincere in religion. Paul talks about it. He says, in regards to zeal, I was a Pharisee. I was the top in zealous righteousness. The story goes on in verse 18. We see Jesus' reply. He says, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good alone. I want us to understand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus' response is, because of this idea, this word good, which is intrinsically from within, that is character, it is, it is perfectness, Jesus essentially is telling him, just to clarify what you're saying, God is the one who is good, and you're calling me good. Jesus goes on and he says, here it is. Here's the answer. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not uh, murder, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Jesus gives them the answer. What do you want to know? You want to know what you must do? Here it is. Because, brothers and sisters, there are two ways, and I know you're going to pick up your stones to, to stone me. There are two ways to get to heaven. And Jesus tells us the first one here, perfect obedience to the law. Keep the law. You want to earn eternal life? Keep the law. This is the reality for anyone who wants to earn eternal life. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus comes and He says, hey, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, because they don't keep the law perfectly, unless you exceed that, you will never see the kingdom of God. And in fact, it's not just the laws, he says. He says, you have heard that it was said of old that if a man commits adultery, he is guilty of the, breaking the law. But I tell you, if a man looks lustfully at a woman in his heart, he is guilty of Committing adultery. So Jesus says, not only do your righteous deeds need to exceed that of the religious leaders, but you have to understand that it's not just the, the written law that you have to, to obey perfectly, but your heart has to also be perfect in its obedience and keeping of the law. And then Jesus concludes the sermon by saying in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, here it is be perfect. You want to know what it means to earn eternal life? Keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. And before we get outraged at this young man's response, I want us to consider and think of our society and how oftentimes people say things like, people are basically good. Right? Right? Turn on the news and, and you'll hear people say, well, people are basically good. I believe that people are good. People are good. People are good. And you, you watch that video, American Gospel. You, they actually play a, a clip of a bunch of different people, talk show hosts, even the president, saying that people are good. People are good. And so when this young man says, all these I have kept from my youth, we shouldn't be surprised. Because this is the mentality in the heart of people today is that we are good people and, and, and we, we do good things. And, and so when this young man is presented with the truth um, that you want to earn eternal life, here it is. Keep the commandments. He says, all these I've kept from my youth. And the message of this man, what he unintentionally says, I am God, because I've kept the law. All these from my youth, I've kept them. The man should have responded, there is no way I have kept them. Or can keep the law completely. I need a Savior. You see, the purpose of the law has always been one full uh, purpose. Conviction of sin. My wife and I were driving on the way to, to something earlier this week and we were talking about this and and she said you know I've been reading through uh, the the law and and how strict it is on the requirements of the the priesthood and what what the sacrifices have to do and why why is it so complex and why is it so you know detailed and so so efficient or whatever you want to say when you look at it and you see all the monotonous details of things and and it's just it's continually pointing me to the one fact that when we look at this we realize how how utterly impossible it is to keep the law. Paul says, you know what the purpose of the law is? The purpose is this, that it's a schoolmaster, it's a teacher that is to bring me to Christ. Romans 7, 7, Paul says, what shall we say then? That the law is sin by no means. If I had not known the law, I would not have known sin." In Hebrews chapter 10, we're told, for since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. And it goes on, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The purpose of the law, the psalmist even said, he said, the law is perfect. What for? For converting the soul. The law has an intended purpose. And that is what Jesus is doing here. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Keep the the law to completeness. And what the man should have said was, I can't. I'm in trouble. And then verse 21, it says, Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have. Give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. This is Jesus' answer. He looks at the man. He examines him. Jesus has pity on him, loves him. What an amazing thing when you think about it. Jesus knew that this young man was to reject him. Jesus knew what would come, and Jesus looked at him. And he knew the desperation in this man that he was desperately unsatisfied with life and he looked at him and he felt sorry for him and he loved him. What Depths of love. You know, when we sing songs about how great, how great, how great is your love. Can we just pause and reflect on that? That Jesus loves us so much that while we were still enemies... He came and died for us. How great is His love. That should be a a thought that is ringing through our heads over and over again. Jesus loved him. Jesus filled with compassion, looked at this man whose life was so empty. He probably recognized that this man had built all of his, his wealth and all of his hopes and dreams and all of his religious sincerity on climbing the corporate ladder only to get to a place where he recognized by the words of Jesus, That he was on the wrong ladder. And he speaks life to him. He says, you want satisfaction? You lack one thing. And the word there for lack, I found this amazing. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. The word lack, there's the same word that's used in Romans 3.23 where it says, for the weight, I'm sorry, all have sinned and had fallen short of the glory of God. That word for fall short is the exact same word of lack. You lack, you're so close is what Jesus says. You're so close. You are right on the cusp, man. You, you, you just need, and, and what does he mean by that? He means Jesus is giving him the gospel. And he's right there. It's almost as if Paul is saying, uh, uh, the word is nigh unto you. It is on your tongue. It is in your heart. If you would just confess that Jesus is Lord, you'd be saved. One thing you lack. You are so close. What was the one thing? This is the worst part. For all of us. The one thing he lacks is the idol of his heart, his possessions. God cannot share, and God will not allow to share His lordship with your idols. Matthew six twenty four. Jesus, in giving another sermon on 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 money, he says, "You cannot serve both God and money." Can I have two masters? So what is Jesus' prescription? Go, get rid of it. Please note, because I had done this for many years, I'd look at this text and say it's about wealth. Please note that this is not a prohibition for wealth. It's, right there. It's, it's not a prohibition for wealth. This text is not in any way, shape, or form a prohibition of wealth. In fact, we find throughout Scripture there are many wealthy men who are godly men. Job was filled with all kinds of wealth. It was taken from him, and then it came back in, in, in increasing measure. Joseph went to Egypt, and he became a very wealthy man, and he was a godly man. Abraham, we're told in Genesis chapter 13, had so much, he was overloaded with possessions that the land could not even bear to have him and his nephew in the same place. They were overloaded with wealth. But there is a key, and Abraham is such a great example for us. Abraham is often called the man of the tent and the altar. Because everywhere Abraham went, he pitched a tent and he built an altar. Everywhere that he went, he pitched a tent and built an altar. Read everywhere in, in, in Genesis where Abraham travels, it says he pitched a tent and he built an altar. What does that mean? It means that he was not tethered to this place. Abraham never owned a piece of land until his wife died. At his death, Abraham's only possession of land was the tomb of his wife. And everywhere he went, he built an altar because he recognized that not only am I not tethered to this place, but my future is with a God who is worthy of praise. He was a man of the tent and the altar. So even though he had great possessions, he always looked beyond this life. He set his affections on things above. Moses, it says in Hebrews 11, he forsook the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he looked for something coming. It is not a prohibition of wealth. The problem with this young man wasn't that he owned great wealth. It was that his great wealth owned him. That's the issue. He was religious and sincere, but his heart was divided and committed to an idol. So Jesus says, go get rid of it and come follow me. And the Greek word follow is in the present tense, meaning continually follow me. It is a lifestyle. Present tense, lifestyle. So what's the outcome? Verse 22, it tells us, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had great possessions. He walked away from Jesus disheartened because he couldn't let go of his idols. What a cost. He wanted God, but not at the cost of his possessions. He wanted to serve God, but not sacrifice. Yet he sacrificed the future for the present. What a cost to pay for his idol. Can we just pause and consider right now that what is the thing, the one thing Jesus is pointing at you? And saying, there is something getting in the way of a deeper relationship with me. It may not be a salvation, salvation issue, but maybe it's a fellowship issue. The one thing we think we need to be satisfied might actually be the one thing keeping us from satisfaction. Satisfaction. Jesus is always, please note, Jesus is always willing to sacrifice whatever is in your life that is keeping us back from a deep abiding relationship with Him. Are you willing to part with whatever it is that's getting in the way of being a follower of Jesus? That's a tough one. We don't like to interspect on that one because we're going to find that there are deep roots In our heart, oftentimes, the things that we don't want to let go of. I can't tell you how many times there have been uh, ongoing battles in my own mind over things that I really love, but they interfere with a deeper relationship with the Lord. It may be that they're not bad things. In fact, we're going to get to the end of this and we're going to talk about some of these things that, that they're not bad things, but if they interfere, if they get in the way and they become our idol, we don't want to let them go because we don't think we can live without him. But the reality is there's only one thing we can't live without, and that is Jesus. Jesus goes on in verse 23, he says, and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, Jesus looks around and he goes, hey, great teaching opportunity for my disciples. And this is where it gets so beautiful. Jesus says to them, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Again, this is not about the prohibition of wealth. It's about the trust in riches. And oftentimes those who are wealthy, those who have possessions, the problem with the American church is we have so much possessions that we do not depend on the Lord for anything. You know why uh, most American Christians don't spend a lot of time in prayer? Because we got money, and money's a lot easier to fix our problems than Jesus. Because it requires effort. It requires going to the Lord in prayer. And we have wealth beyond measure in America. And when we do not see a need, it will always be difficult. And so what Jesus is saying is it will be difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God because it is easier to trust in possessions and in anything but the king. His disciples hear this and in verse 24 we're told that they were amazed at his words and Jesus wants to ratchet it up a notch. You think that's amazing? Guess what? Jesus says in verse 24, and and what a loving Jesus, this is. He looks at his disciples and he uses the same word that he's been telling them that they need to be like. He says children, children. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples are amazed at all this. Why are they amazed? This guy was the ideal candidate. He was rich, he was young, he was influential, he had power, he was religious, he had everything going for him. And Jesus says, it's not enough. And then Jesus says, not only that, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter in the kingdom of God. Disciples were going to be told in verse 26, it says, and they were exceedingly astonished, mind-blown mind blown. You want to know why? Because Jesus just gave them this incredible analogy that is a common uh, analogy that would have been heard all over that area. And, and I, 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 I get frustrated when I hear people uh, train, change it a little bit. So the, Luke uses the Greek word for a surgeon's needle, okay? It is a literal needle. It's not that little entranceway into the city where a camel comes up loaded. Because maybe you've heard this, you know, maybe Jesus is speaking about the metaphor that when the city gates are closed, there's a small door beside. And if a merchant comes loaded with stuff, he's got to get off his camel and unload everything and then get the camel to kneel down and go through. That implies that there's a possibility okay and that implies also work that i would unload all this stuff and then i can get in no no jesus says and, and back in those days they would use whatever the largest mammal was so in babylon they talked about an elephant going through the eye of a needle the reality is it's not possible that's what Jesus is saying. It is not that there's a possibility if we do a bunch of work that we can squeeze through. Jesus is saying, except for, and back then they didn't have blenders, so ex- there's no way to get the camel through the eye of a needle. It is literally impossible. And that's why the disciples go, Oh my. And you tell their shock in it by their response. Then who can be saved? Brothers and sisters, this is exactly where Jesus wants people to be. Mind blown to the point of saying, who can be saved? Remember this young man came to Jesus, what must I do to be saved? Jesus says, you can't. There is literally nothing you can do to be saved. And the disciples, looking at this ideal candidate, says, then who can be saved? What a question that is. And this is where everyone who will be saved must come. Must come. When we are finally willing to lay down any possibilities that we have of appeasing the Father in His righteous wrath and judgment, looking down upon the sinfulness of mankind, when we can finally get to a place and realize there is literally zero, nothing I can do to enter in by my own works, then we are at the perfect place. He finally got through to them. And then Jesus gives us the great gospel. Jesus looks at them, examines them. You can just, I, can, I can picture Jesus with a smile on his face saying, Finally, an opportunity for you guys to get this. With man, it's not possible. But with God, all things are possible. No one can enter is the answer apart from God. Jesus says, how can you do the works without me? Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's the beauty of the gospel. You can't do it, but I, Jesus, will make a way. That's the hardest thing for Americans to to, to grasp because we sit here and we think of all that we have and we are so independent. We are taught from a young age to be independent and to do things and to to accomplish things, to pick ourselves up from our bootstraps. And and this is the American way to do all these things. And when we hear the message that you can't do it, but only Jesus can, and you must be totally 100% dependent upon Him, that is a hard message to receive. And here's the reality. Salvation is God's business, not ours. And when we grasp this, it is a beautiful gospel. The wheel starts spinning, you can tell, with Peter. And he blurts out like he normally does the first thing that comes to his mind. Hey, wait a minute. If, if this guy was told to leave things... Hey, we've left everything, Jesus. What do we get? We've left everything. And we followed you. And please note, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I want to get to our application. After Peter says, hey, wait a minute, we sacrifice everything, Jesus promises reward. He says, I know. I know what you've sacrificed. He says, truly I say to you, there is not, no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or land for my sake and for the gospel. And there's a, there's a uh, uh, format of speech in that where he's, he's putting the word or in to make sure that we understand that each individual thing is recognized. He says, who will receive not receive a hundredfold, uh, now in this time, houses and brothers. Again, he's emphasizing. So the first time he says, or, to establish each. And now he's, he's using the word and to establish a connection that all of them together, uh, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last first. What Jesus is saying We don't sacrifice for rewards, but I recognize your sacrifices, and please know that they will not go unnoticed. So what's the application of this passage? Because uh, we could easily turn it into what so oftentimes we do, which is a, a, a commentary on rich people, wealthy people. But to me, I think that the biggest application is the hardest question, which is, what is the idol of your heart? Is it wealth or possessions? Do we strive to accomplish the corporate ladder so that we can make more, earn more? And, and you know, I struggle with this so oftentimes, not trying to reach up on the corporate ladder. I think I've hit my peak. But, but trying to figure out, what is the way I can purchase the next item? We have a society that is addicted to shopping. You know why? Because we're we're seen through commercials on TV. We hear it on the radio that you need more, you need more, you need something else. It was uh, a Rockefeller who was asked one time, "How much money is enough?" And he said, "One more dollar." We don't sacrifice four. And and so we live in a society where it's always trying to accomplish more and get more and gain more and have more. And if we just if we would just you know ask my wife. How many times I've told her, well, this is my last big purchase. Actually, don't. I'll be embarrassed. But there's always one more thing we need because that's what's going to bring me happiness. If I can just get this one more thing, I will be happy for five minutes. Just one more thing they don't satisfy. Our possessions, an idol of our heart. Possessions aren't bad it's not bad to own a house. It's not bad to have a car. It's not bad to have these things. But if they are the idol of your heart, they interfere with a deep relationship that Jesus wants us to have. This is a tough one. Is the idol of your heart family? I want a perfect marriage. Or I'm single, I just got to find the perfect spouse, I got to get married. How many times do we sit here as young single people, we say, if I can just find the right spouse, I will be happy in life. That will not bring satisfaction. If I can just have a marriage where we go uh, a week without fighting, it will be satisfying. No, it won't because you'll find something else. If I can just have the perfect children... That, 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 uh, that, uh, that they obey all the time, the first time, whatever it is. These are idols of our heart that we think if we get them, we will be satisfied. But that's not Jesus. There aren't bad things, but they can get in the way. Is it influence? If I could just have power to influence people, if I could just be more popular, if I could just have more friends, if I could just have more of whatever it is. Is it physical fitness? That if I would just build a body like Pastor Nate, you know, I would be satisfied. No. This is it the perfect spiritual life that I'd get up every single morning and pray for two hours and read the word for six? This is it the perfect ministry? These people need me. i got to be there. i got to do this. i got to do that. i gotta, I got to be involved in ministry here and here and here and here because ministry is what it's all about. You know what all these things are? They're defining our value on what we do and not on what the Lord says of us. Is it happiness? If I could just be happy in life, if I would just be happy in life, I would be satisfied. So we pursue after happiness. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. God's number one concern is not your happiness, but your heart. He cares that you are happy because He loves you as children, but your heart is what He's after. He would gladly sacrifice. Please listen to this. Take it to heart and asking yourself, what is the idol of your heart? God would gladly sacrifice wealth, possessions, your family, your marriage, your children, your influence, your physical health, your, your, your happiness for a relationship with you. A deeper relationship with you. That's hard to hear, right? Because those things are all good, especially family and, 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 and joy and happiness. Those things are good, but God wants your heart. When Jesus looked at this rich young ruler, he could have said, man, this guy is a perfect elder candidate. He's young, he's spiritual, he's got influence. We should sign him up to be an elder. But God looked at him and he knew that in his heart there was an idol that was going to always impact him. And he drove a nail right into it. He said, you know, your possessions, they're in the way. Get rid of them. And we should be running to Jesus saying, these are my things that are in the way of you. I will give them to you. And we sit here and say, well, how how can you say that about family? Abraham was a man who loved God. And you know what he said? Here's my son. I give him to you because I know what you're calling me to. He believed God and God was able to provide a substitute. You see, the reality is we can look around at all this and we can say and and we can count our many blessings and we can see all the things that we do have, that we live in a country where it's free, where we can gather here without fear, where we are relatively free of persecution. We can look at the the fact that we're probably not going to miss lunch today because we can't afford it. We can look at all these things and we can realize that we have so much and yet we are still empty without Jesus. So Jesus says, give it up and follow me. Abandon all you have and you will gain everything. What a message. And the second thing that I would challenge us with in this text is the beauty and, in my opinion, the craziness of the gospel. I mentioned the, the parable, the unjust stewards, and I've been thinking about this a lot because, you know, you have, I think, an unintended connection here. Or maybe it was intended uh, with the sovereignty of God, but it just struck me that, you know, this, this young ruler, this young man comes to Jesus and he says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And I think of these unjust stewards who, when they saw the son, and of course we know this is a parable about Jesus coming, that the Father sent the Son, and they say, Here is the heir. If we kill him, we will get the inheritance. Here's the beauty and the craziness of the gospel we have killed the heir, and we have the potential to get the inheritance. We who believe will inherit. The beauty of the gospel, Jesus says, what you give up, this is the rewards. We can look at these rewards and think, man, I've given up house, where's my new house? I've given up children, where's my my children? I've given up all these things, where is my new? Here's what Jesus says, what you give up in this life, you will end up with something a thousand times better in eternal life. Abandon all, and you will gain everything. That's the gospel, that Jesus looked upon humanity. And with them, it was impossible to inherit eternal life. That the reality is that what must I do to inherit eternal life? The answer is there is nothing you can do. But that Jesus came. He was killed. And he rose from the dead, and it says that all who believe in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, they can have that righteousness and stand before God holy and just. For all who believe will inherit eternal life. Brothers and sisters, if there are idols in your heart, don't waste any more time pursuing something that will not bring satisfaction. Don't put anything in front of Jesus, anything. Anything. And so oftentimes we're tricked into thinking that those are the things that give me happiness. I don't have time to spend more time with Jesus. But if we reversed it, we'll find that when we spend more time with Jesus, there is more joy and there is better marriage, there is better children, there is better uh, whatever. Fill in the blank. And second, I would just leave us with this what an incredible gospel! What an incredible gospel that we have killed the Son of God by our sins, nailing Him to the cross. And all who believe, He offers eternal life. Don't leave here today if that's not your story. Come find me. Find one of the elders. Talk to us. Pray with us. It's not a magic prayer that you suddenly say the right words and you enter into the kingdom of heaven because that would be what you must do. The reality is the work is done Believe it and welcome to the family of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how great is Your love for us that we have killed the Son of God, crucified Him with our own sins. And yet You demonstrate Your love for us because You have come and died willingly for us. And yet, Lord, we cling to things of this life, the shiny objects that, that catch our attention, and we think that's what brings happiness. Lord, I pray that there would be nothing in our way between a relationship with You. Lord, I pray that we can take all of our things, all of our, our family, all of our possessions, all of our, 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 our pursuit of things and place them on the altar Give them to you with full assurance that you are much greater at taking care of them than us. Whatever it might be, Lord, whether it's our ministry, whether it's our hopes and dreams of the future, whether it's a, a future marriage, whether, whatever it might be, Lord. Help us not to trust in anything but you. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here today that does not understand ask the question, "What then, who then can be saved?" that you would tell them, "Speak to them today, you can." Would you draw them would you draw them to you, Lord? Would you put in our hearts a passion for people who do not know you, that we might seek to share the truth with them? We love you, Jesus. We thank you for dying for us. We thank you for doing the impossible that we can inherit eternal life. We praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.